This is the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. Thanks for tuning in on this Wednesday afternoon. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as you heard the announcer say, this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, questions about church, whatever's on your heart. You need only to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. As always, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else will be hands-free and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, we got a lot of stuff going on here at Calvary Chapel tonight. I'm going to be teaching uh, 2 Kings, uh, finishing chapter 23 and trying to finish all of chapter 24. Uh, we got one more week after tonight and then we'll be done with the books of First and 2 Kings. Uh, and then, of course, tomorrow is a date day show. Paula will be here, but she has a surprise with uh, coming tomorrow. Uh, some of the ladies from our women's retreat are going to be here, and that's always a real popular show. So tune in and listen to what some of the ladies, different age brackets and, and different backgrounds, uh, listen to what some of the ladies uh, have to say about what the Lord was doing at the women's retreat that we just came back from. Okay, let's get to some questions while we wait. This is one from our email inbox from Alex. Pastor Ron, howdy. Hope you've been well. Thank you, Alex. I have. Uh, I have a couple questions about baptism. In Matthew 28, Jesus gives us the Great Commission. And I'm going to read the the passage. He says, "Uh, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things. And and I like the, the translation, it's obey all things uh, that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, having quoted that, he says, however, in Acts chapter 8, verse 9 through verse 25, we have the account of the man Simon, uh, Simon who previously practiced sorcery. Simon saw the works of God through Philip. He believed and was baptized. Uh, Peter and John then visit uh, and lay hands on those with Simon, and they receive the Holy Spirit. My question deals with verse 16. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Question one, Jesus instructed us to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Why did Philip baptize the others only in the name of Jesus? Question two uh, is, I was under the impression that the Holy Spirit permanently indwells all believers at the moment of salvation. If this is true, then why then was a separate act necessary, the laying on of hands for believers to receive the Holy Spirit? God bless your ministry, Alex. Alex, thank you for the blessing. Um, a couple of things about the passage, and, and this is um, something we, we really have to sort of dig in to sort of uh, to understand. Um, the first question you asked was baptism. Why did Philip baptize them uh, only in the name of Jesus? Um, we don't know that that's the only only way he baptized them. He very likely or very possibly could have baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. However, the writer of the book of Acts um, um, didn't include that. It's not leaving out a detail. It's not a contradiction. It's just as he was writing, um, everybody would have understood that to baptize in Jesus' name uh, meant baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Jesus and the Father were one. Jesus and the Spirit were one. So, Alex, uh, it isn't necessarily so that he only baptized in the name of Jesus. But remember, the Lord knows their hearts and knows what they were doing. So the formula matters not. What matters is the heart, and, and it's clear that Philip was doing the work of the Lord. Now, I think this is also important because it leads to the next question. When you say that you were under the impression that the Holy Spirit indwells, permanently indwells all believers at the moment of salvation, you're right. And the Holy Spirit came to live in them. Now, in the book of Acts, Alex, there's three different relationships that we as believers have with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to use the Greek words uh, so that you can trace them through the, the, the book of Acts. Um, um, so we understand the work of the Holy Spirit. The first word is, is para. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us. And that's when Jesus said he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And, and that's what he does. So our first relationship is when the Holy Spirit comes alongside us and begins to convict us of sin. We, we become aware of the fact that we are sinners and that we've done some bad things and that our sins need to be forgiven. Otherwise, then we're going to be judged for eternity and, uh, of course, we understand that Jesus came to save us from that kind of a judgment. So the, the Holy Spirit always begins with the para, the English equivalent would be with. He comes alongside us or he comes with us. When I say just be with Jesus, uh, I'm talking about walking with him throughout the day. And that's the idea. The Holy Spirit is leading us at that point to Jesus. The second relationship that we have is the English word in, I-N, but it's also in in Greek, but it's E-N in Greek. And that's when he comes in us. And that is the completion of a transaction. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we're truly born again, remember, God knows our hearts. God knows those who are his. He won't be mocked or deceived. When we are truly born again, the Holy Spirit comes within us, Ephesians 1. Uh, beginning in verse 13, says that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance in heaven. So it's it's uh, it's like earnest money. Jesus is saying, okay, this is the proof that you now belong to me. So that happens upon believing, upon conversion, and every believer has that experience. Every true believer has that experience with the Holy Spirit. And of course, we know that he will never 
leave us or forsake us. So that's the second experience. The third experience, and this is the one that you're talking about, is the epi, E-P-I in Greek. Uh, we would use the English word equivalent upon. The Holy Spirit comes upon us and in power. And we'll see throughout the book of Acts, Alex, that the Holy Spirit comes upon us over and over and over again. It is a necessarily repeatable experience. Now, obviously, he came uh, upon the disciples first in Acts chapter 2. Uh, that was the, the, the grand entrance of the Holy Spirit into this world. Um, and when he came upon them, they spoke in tongues and they were empowered to do ministry. And, of course, thousands upon thousands of people got saved. And yet, repeatedly, we see the disciples being filled, epi, again and again and again, uh, because we all need to be filled afresh every single day. So the power of God is available to us. Now, in this particular case, it also is true when you get to Acts chapter 10 or with the ministry of Cornelius or the ministry, frankly, to Cornelius, um, um, the, the Spirit comes upon them and it's the Holy Spirit's way of validating that their conversion experience was genuine, that it was authentic. Now, here's why it needed to be authentic. In Acts chapter 8, Samaritans were getting saved. Jews didn't believe that Samaritans had any part in the kingdom of God. Jews didn't believe that Samaritans could be saved. They just, the Samaritans hated Jews. Jews hated Samaritans. And so, when Philip went, delivered the message, and a great work was being done, and, and you'll read Acts chapter 8, Philip was responsible for doing miracles, signs, and wonders. That's what Simon saw. That's what convinced him that the power from God was real. Uh, when that happened, uh, in order for Jews to be able to accept Samaritans, John and Peter had to go, and they saw it with their own eyes. And then it was one of those things well, they received the Holy Spirit the same way as we did, so who are we to, to prohibit them from, from becoming Christians? And the same thing again happens in Acts chapter 8 because Jews hated Gentiles even more. So, or Acts chapter 10, I'm sorry. Uh, Jews hated Gentiles even more and, and again didn't believe that Gentiles had any right or any possibility of being in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven ever. So it was just in those two instances, there was the opportunity for them to go validate the experience, and then they could be witnesses that both Samaritans and Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. And Peter would say, what was I to do? And, and you remember, when he came back, especially from Cornelius' house, he came back and um, uh, he was taken to task. You ate with a Gentile. You went into a Gentile home. And Peter basically said, look, Holy Spirit fell upon them just like he fell upon us. So who am I to, to, to say otherwise? So that's why it all happened that way. And, and that's why the, the power of the Holy Spirit, the epi or upon experience of the Holy Spirit was withheld. One other comment, Alex, on your question. Simon the sorcerer was not a real believer. When it says Simon believed, um, um, he, it says he saw the works of God through Philip. That's your explanation. That's exactly right. He believed, but what he believed was that the power of God was real. Now, remember, he was a fake, a, a, a magician, a sorcerer, and he had the people fooled. 
And he knew that when they saw real power, they too would do it. So he offered to buy the power. And of course, Peter's response, and I'm going to be very literal on this, he said, may your money go to hell with you. And and uh, Peter said, you have no share or part of this ministry. So Simon the sorcerer was not a believer. And the fact that it says, and Simon believed, we have to understand by the context of the passage what he believed. He did not believe in a saving sense, Alex. So I hope that helps, hope you, you understand that. Actually, Simon the sorcerer became an infamous figure in the early church. Uh, literally, the uh, uh, there was simony was was named after him, and uh, that's that's what he kind of struggled with. Good question, Alex, to start with. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question. This one is from Tim. He says, I know we are saved by grace, but Galatians 5 says the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Is that a contradiction? No, it's not at all, Tim. Now, remember, Paul's writing a very contentious letter to the, the, the Galatians. Uh, they're trying to swallow the Christians, the converts from Judaism especially, but not just Jews, also um, uh, Gentiles. They're trying to make them Jewish. And so Paul is rebuking them for the entire letter. And in this particular case, he's saying, look, we're saved by grace. Um, but when you see somebody who's living a lifestyle, it's not just a sexually immoral. There's others and, and other lifestyles described that that will or will also say they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's people who live like this, and it describes a lifestyle. It doesn't describe somebody who um, fell into sin or somebody who was overcome by temptation. And, of course, they hate it and they repent. That's not a, at all what was in view here. It is practicing a lifestyle of sin. And people who do that, no matter what they say with their mouth, Tim, people who do that are not Christians. And so that's that's what he's saying there at all. That's important for us because we see a large uh, segment of the professing Christian church in, in these days that we live in um, uh, allowing or blessing same-sex relationships, same-sex marriage, uh, transgender uh, uh, transitions, um, and, and saying, oh, no, we're all children of God. Uh, those are not Christian churches. Those are not Christians who have a doctrine that is consistent with the Word of God. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, and he says this, by the way, the same thing in almost the same list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, the people that you see living a lifestyle of sin, though they say they're Christians, they're really not Christians, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, our problem with that, Tim, is that we're not qualified to judge. So here's what I always do. When somebody is living like a pagan, an unbeliever, I treat them like an unbeliever. And I've had a lot of people when I've said, look, you're living with this woman or you're living with this man you're not married to. And the Bible says right here that you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Well, well, I thought once I was saved, I'm always saved, and, and nobody's perfect kind of thing. And, and I look at them and say, look, all I can tell you is what the Bible says. And the idea here is that real believers, genuine believers, Tim, cannot live in a lifestyle of willful rebellion against God. If the Holy Spirit lives in them, and that's what identifies us as a Christian, the Holy Spirit in us will convict us and will be miserable. Even in our sin, we will be miserable. 
And so somebody who says, no, I'm okay with this. I don't have any problem with that. And somebody not too long ago who uh, who refused to get married um, because they, there was a, a government check involved. And they said, well, well, uh, God certainly wouldn't want me to do without that money. And, and I said, look, you're selling Jesus out for whatever the amount of money you get per month is. Do you, do you think he's not going to be faithful? Do you think he's not worth that sacrifice? People who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And our problem, Tim, is we've got too many teachers, pastors in churches who are just sort of turning a blind eye to that kind of lifestyle. And, oh, God understands and he doesn't understand. Coming to Jesus costs us something. We've got to die to our flesh. And we come by faith in that same faith that, that, that grace provides for us. That same grace uh, produces a faith that will trust him in these situations that, well, to us it makes sense to stay in sin, but, but to God it never does. So I hope that makes sense to you, Tim. That's an important question with a lot of practical value for the times that we live in in these last days. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from John. How can I reconcile God being sovereign and Paul saying that Satan is the God, and it's a little g-god, of this world? Um, you know, Satan's also called the prince of the air, um, uh, the one who now is in control. Um, but r- remember, Satan, and this sounds strange to people, but Satan, though he is rebelling against God, is a servant of God. Satan can only do what a sovereign God allows him to do. So God has Satan on a leash. It's a pretty short leash. Um, uh, but but God's sovereignty, there's no conflict here at all. What he's really saying, uh, Paul, is that Satan is the um, the one who appears to be in control here. He's the one that rules the world that we live in in the sense that the world is following after him, running away from God. That's the wide road that leads to destruction, the narrow road that leads to salvation. Satan is the one on that wide road saying, come this way, come this way. And so there's, there's no contradiction at all. God's sovereignty allows him to use Satan to accomplish his will. And we're going to do that. You know, John, one of the things that um, uh, you can look at is Revelation. Uh, after Jesus' return, after he destroys his enemies, um, the, uh, during the millennial reign, actually right at the end of the millennial reign, um, Satan is let loose from his prison. And the reason he's let loose is to act again as a servant of God. He's going to be used by the Lord to deceive people who live through the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, those in flesh and blood bodies, people that, that survived the Great Tribulation and then lived into and were born during the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, they will never have had the opportunity to make a free will choice to serve God. They will have been compelled to. And so the devil is going to go out. They're going to have to make their own choice. And the Bible says, sadly, that the numbers of those um, who rebelled against God are like the grains of sand on the seashore. Uh, And it's all because of Satan. And it's just sort of God's way of saying, you know, the problem has always been the flesh. So, again, no contradiction there. Uh, no damage done to the sovereignty of God. 
John, he is sovereign, and yet Satan is the one who appears to be in control in this world. Here is a question from Colby. I really appreciate this question, Colby. Does your church allow kids to participate in communion? What if they don't really understand? You know, Colby, we have always taken the approach, and the same thing is true with baptism. The two sacraments of the church are communion and baptism. Um, uh, we've always taken the, the approach here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, um, suffer not the little children to come unto me. And we use communion in our little kids' uh, services um, to as a teaching experience. We let them know that this represents the body and the blood of Jesus. This represents what he did for you. This represents his love for you. And, and so, yes, we allow our kids to participate in communion um, and uh, um, the same thing is true with baptism. Now, with baptism, I'll take, I'll take it a step farther. With baptism, um, either either um, a, a pastor or or I will talk to the child. We want to know that they have some idea. We want to know that it's not just a, a parent who's saying dunk them, so so we feel like they're going to heaven. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that think baptism equals automatic salvation. We want to make sure they don't they don't understand uh, that that's the case. So um, if they don't really understand, uh, we make a decision with baptism whether or not it's uh, okay, and we lean heavily toward the side of erring uh, on the side of grace. Um, we want them to get involved. And we allow that to be a learning experience for all of them. But yes, we allow our kids to participate in communion. And in all of our services, Colby, we tell them what communion is all about. Um, and uh, we just uh, are, are, are counting on the Holy Spirit who's going to show them. Now, let me also say this. We have uh, a lot of kids in our church uh, over the years. Again, we teach the Bible. Uh, from the when kids come here to Calvary Chapel, we don't have curriculum, we don't have programs, we teach the word verse by verse, just like I do. They do it more interestingly than I do. They do it um, certainly uh, don't take as long as I do, um, but they teach the Bible, and these kids really do understand. They know the word, and they're they're covered in the word, and um, um, we want them to feel like a part of the body. So that's what we do. Quick story. we got two minutes left. We had a, uh, a little boy who was transferring in, in the summertime right after the uh, uh, our schools get out. Um, the, the next Sunday is that we call it transfer Sunday. It's when kids go up a grade. So we'll take kids out of toddlers and we'll put them in the kindergarten and, and first grade room. And the first and second graders, they go up to another room. And and uh, one of the kids who uh, was uh, coming out of the, the toddler room uh, on his first day, he came out and he was kind of upset. And, and uh, his mom said, well, what's the matter with you? And he said, that was the worst snack I've ever had. And we were, what do you mean snack? Yeah, all they gave me for a snack. Now, remember, in the, in the toddler room, they gave him a snack snack. Well, that's the worst snack I read. All they gave us was a little tiny piece of cracker and some juice. And it was a communion that he was partaking in. And he just thought he got ripped off. So that was one of those neat things. Colby, thanks for the question. 
Maverick says, I have a friend who says he's free to drink and explains that he sometimes gets drunk and uh, or explain that he sometimes gets drunk uh, as something that God forgives. Uh, Maverick, your friend is on really dangerous ground. To, to, to Paul calls this trampling on the grace of God. When somebody says, well, you know, I'm free to drink, and if I get drunk, God will forgive me anyway. Or if I have sex with somebody, you know, God understands my needs, and, and I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, that's really the heart of somebody who isn't saved. So, Maverick, I would share the gospel with your friend, and I would tell him. Mm-hmm. Those who drink, Galatians 5, 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, uh, people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Being drunk is a sin against God, the God that your friend says he's, he, he loves and is obligated to. And yet the reality is, if he really loved him, then he would understand that he's free not to sin. He's free not to drink. I think too often we take this idea of Christian freedom uh, to the wrong uh, extreme. We're free not to sin. That's the freedom. That's where real freedom is. We don't have to give in. And he has the opportunity, Maverick, and this is where you can direct him. Every time he wants to take a drink, he can say, you know what? I'm free in Christ. I don't have to be controlled by this alcohol. I don't have to drink it. Imagine how pleased God would be. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the show. The phones have been quiet. We'd love your calls. 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday show, 340-9585. Jimmy gave me a break. Jimmy, thank you for calling. You are on the air. Hello, sir. Hi, Jimmy. Hi, sir. Um, I want to ask you a simple question. Okay. I do you believe that we're in the beginning of birth pains? Ah, yeah, it's not, not, not such a simple question. I believe, Jimmy, and, and you've heard me say this repeatedly on the program, I believe we're in the last hours of the last days. Uh, I think God is trying to to knock on the door of our hearts and get our attention. I think he's speaking to people all over the world. It's time to get right with God. And I think this is just the end of God's patience. It's interesting you ask that question because tonight uh, I'm going to be teaching um, um, in, in the, toward the end of 2 Kings, or at the end, really, of 2 Kings. Um, uh, and, and, you know, they have ignored God's cries to them. Prophet after prophet. Uh, has warned them over and over, begged them. Jeremiah especially pleaded with them, and they simply never would listen to the Lord. And I believe that God is trying to get our attention. And I think he's using the exact same things that he's used throughout history. I think he's using natural disasters. I think he's using um, uh, temperature change. And notice I didn't say climate change because this isn't the nonsense that we hear um, on the media, through the media. Um, I think he's using 
um, the hardness of men's heart, these mass shootings, the shootings of, of children, um, the, the, the absolute lawlessness that we see all around us. And I think what God is saying, this is what happens when you don't pay attention to me, when you rebel against me. And I think he's asking us, begging us to repent and get right with God. And I think he's judging not only or, or speaking not only to people, but I think he's speaking to those in power. I think he's speaking to nations. And uh, what we've been watching, Jimmy, is the, the whole world completely ignoring God. I mean, we've, we've murdered 65 million babies. There's a line in tonight's study. I don't want to give away too much. But there's a line in tonight's study where it describes the sin of, during the time Manasseh lived. And it says, the Lord was unwilling to forgive their sins. That's a frightening statement. And I think we're approaching that very moment. And I think the the murder of 65 million babies, and I think the outcry of those who are who have made supporting abortion uh, the, the, the goal of their lives. I think that's just an example of the hardest of hearts. And so, yeah, I do think that we are, are um, in the beginning of birth pangs. Um, okay. Oh, sorry. That's what okay. Are you gonna study tonight? What, what are you going to study today? What, what, what scriptures? Second uh, Kings 23, starting in verse 31. Uh, And I'm going to try to get all the way through 24. And then there's only one more time in in chapter 25 of 2 Kings, which will be next Wednesday night. Um, It's the last king. He's the king who who, uh, threw Jeremiah in a cistern. Um, In tonight's Bible study, uh, one of the kings, uh, as, as Jeremiah's prophecies are being read to him, he's cutting them off. Jeremiah's writing them. He's cutting them off and then throwing them in the fire to be burned. It's just a complete and total hard heart against God and against his word. And, uh, and, and this is really the end. Uh, where I pick up tonight, there's, only, there's less than 12 years left before Nebuchadnezzar comes in and completely and totally destroys um, Jerusalem. So, Jimmy, I think we're seeing that in the world that we live in right now. Again, I don't have a timetable. Uh, I don't know where in that, that stage we are. But clearly, I think God is trying to get people's attention. And especially the extreme weather has nothing to do with climate change. I think the extreme weather that we're having uh, in all parts of the world, California is underwater. I I told somebody today that, um, you know, if I was California or if I lived in California, I'd be saying, God, we repent. I'm sorry. Please forgive us. And of course, nobody is. Nobody's acknowledging that God even exists. Um, and, and, you know, they're getting hammered again with water and rains and flooding uh, at, at levels that they have never seen before. And it's just God simply shaking things up. And this isn't just happening in the United States. This is happening all over the world. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I just had that feeling. And yep. I, I just was knowing that the whole, I knew that the Holy Spirit was telling me something. Yep, I agree with you, Jimmy. We can pray. Okay, thank you, sir. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. Let's go to Cindy on line two. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you? Cindy, I'm doing well. How about you? Oh, I'm fine. Monday night, we sang a song, and I hadn't heard it before, so I don't remember the exact lines, but it had to do with with the grace in Jesus' eyes 
looking at us, I think. But it got me to thinking about that we're actually going to be standing someday in front of Jesus, looking at Jesus while he's looking at us, looking back at him. And then I started to think about time and space, that God is outside of time and space, so everything that's happening up there has happened. So it made me think about the fact that am I standing up in heaven looking at Jesus, looking at me at the same time that I'm down here on earth just playing, kind of playing catch-up in time? So that's that's what I've been thinking about, and I'm going to let you tangle with that, and I'll listen on the radio. <laughs> Thank Bye. you, Cindy. I, I actually love this question, and and the only negative side of this is that my answer is probably going to people saying, "Oh, he's a heretic. Why why does he think that?" But 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 I believe with all of my heart. Now, God, you're right. He's the I am. I am who I am, um, not the I I was or I will be. He's the I am. So I think when we get to heaven. I think everything that's going to happen has already happened. I think that's what it means. It's sort of like a parallel universe. You know, it's interesting, people that are sci-fi fans, and I am not, so don't think I'm getting weird with sci-fi. But uh, people that are sci-fi fans have no problem talking about parallel universes. The last sci-fi movie I watched was, and I've only watched maybe a couple, but I saw Spider-Man. And I was confused with um, three different Spider-Men um, all together at the same time. Well, this Spider-Man here and Spider—I didn't understand where they, where they could be. Well, people watch those shows and they think nothing of it. I believe with all of my heart. Now, again, I'm in the minority here. This it doesn't deal with any of the essentials of the historic Christian faith, but I believe with all of my heart. That if I were to die before Paula, and Jesus took me into his presence, I think Paula would be there already, and we'd be there together. Now, that's just me thinking. We can't understand. Um, um, uh, no time, no space limitations. Um, but I, I think you're right, Cindy. I think you're on to something. Now, certainly we cannot make doctrine out of it, and I certainly wouldn't. Uh, be offended by the the thousands of people listening to this day saying, man, that's crazy. What is he thinking? Um, um, I, I get it. But I that's just what I believe. And I like to think about these things a lot. So, Cindy, I think that's a really good question. Um, I don't know what song you were talking about because obviously I'm not here on Monday nights. But um, we, we want to be really careful with the songs that we... Um, that we that the lyrics need to be doctrinally sound as well. Thank you, Cindy. Appreciate it very, very much. Here is our next question. This one comes from Jennifer. She says, Legion. <laughs> uh, Matthew says there were two demon-possessed men, but Mark says there was only one. How do I answer someone who says that's a contradiction? Jennifer, um, it's not a contradiction. Let me explain. Um... Matthew, um, uh, and, and remember, all of the gospel accounts have a different focus. Matthew's is the most Jewish of all of the, the gospel accounts, and his ministry was there to, to uh, uh, prove that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. Mark, of course, his purpose was to demonstrate Jesus as um, the, the, the servant of man um, uh, in his humanity. Um, Luke's gospel 
um, uh, G, I'm sorry, Mark is servant. Luke's gospel showed Jesus as servant, and John's gospel showed Jesus as fully God. Um, and and there's no contradiction. Now, if Mark says there was only one, but he didn't. He didn't say there was only one. He he just focused his story. And this remember is Peter's account. So as Peter is dictating to Mark or answering Mark's questions, um, he would focus in on Legion because Legion was the central character. The other demon-possessed man that was there that Matthew points out, that demon-possessed man um, was quiet. He was relatively insignificant to the overall story. So had Mark said there was only one, and I know you said that in your question, Jennifer, but Mark never says that. He just focuses on the one who is central to the story, or to the point of the story. And, of course, that one is Legion. So there were two there. One spoke. Uh, the same thing is true, by the way, in the account of the angels at the tomb. Uh, one of the Gospels says that uh, there was uh, an angel uh, who spoke. Uh, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? And then another gospel says there were two men dressed in white, or two angels, um, and that's not a contradiction. Uh, If the other one had said there was only one angel, then we have a contradiction, but he was just focusing on the main character or the the one who did the speaking. You know, Jennifer, if you and I were talking, and there was a third person there listening to our conversation— and we had two people writing the accounts, somebody might say, well, you know, Jennifer and Pastor Ron were talking about this, and they said this, or they said that. And then somebody else writing an account may say, you know, um, uh, I saw Jennifer talking to Pastor Ron, and there was somebody else there, a third person who was there. But Jennifer and Ron were talking. Um, that, that's not a contradiction. It's just a different focus on the characters in the story. So no contradiction there at all. And remember, when somebody says that Mark Gospel says there was only one, he didn't say that. He just focused on the one that was there who was doing the speaking. Good question. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Christian says, some authors say that the words translated homosexual in the Bible actually refer to pedophiles. Is that true? Christian, you've been reading Matthew Shepard or some of the other, or, or Matthew Vines, I'm sorry, um, um, and, and these guys who are trying to justify homosexuality. Oh, they didn't understand this. No, it means exactly what it means. The word translated um, homosexual behavior or homosexual sin, um, it, it means exactly that. This, the sex between people of the same gender, and of course it is condemned by God. And Christian people will never ever stop trying to find a way around those very clear passages of Scripture. So um, somebody's going to write a book. It's going to sell a lot of books. Oh, he didn't mean homosexuality. He meant people that were not being faithful to their partner, but a monogamous, loving relationship between people of the same gender is okay. Um, They're just writing what they want the Bible to say instead of what the Bible really says. So make no mistake, Christian, no matter how they parse it, having sex with somebody you're not married to, homosexual or heterosexual sex is sin. And I want to say this again. um, People who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Um, and and we've got to understand the Bible for what it says rather than what we want it to say. So it is not true. Don't be persuaded. Um, just look at them and say, you know, you're just making this up because you want your behavior to be okay. We all want our sin that, that we enjoy. We all want God to be okay with it. And rather than change, it's easier to try to get God to change. And we gather people around us, um, itching ears, want to be tickled. That's what Paul says. Um, we end up with apostate churches. And that's what we've got uh, in this effort to really rewrite the Bible and what it says. Our next question, this one comes from Hope. Um, she says, what is the best way to counter someone who says their relationship with God is private and they don't feel they should share it with anyone? I don't think you counter it, Hope. I just think you say that is not a relationship that the Bible even recognizes. You're a servant of God. You've lost your rights. You have no right to privacy. And then take him to the parable of the sower. Our job as Christians is to scatter seed, the word of God. We're to, to share the gospel. The Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And the person who says, well, you know, I'm a private person. I just don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, so I'm not going to share with people. I don't want to offend anyone. Um, you can then take him to the parable of the talents. Or, or Luke, it's the minus. Uh, when... Um, somebody buries their their talent and, and Jesus returns says, you wicked, lazy servant. To have this treasure in us, hope, and not be willing to share it with people demonstrates two things. First, we don't love God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. The second thing it demonstrates is that we really don't love people, the people that we're afraid of offending. If we really love them, We've got the answers to all the problems they've had. We've got the, the answers so that they can escape eternity and torment. If we really love them, we would tell them the truth in love. The reality is that we really don't want to be uncomfortable. We value our comfort more than we value obedience to God. We value our comfort more than we value somebody else's eternal soul. And these are people who... Um, are quenching the work of the Spirit. I, again, I'm going to assume the best. I'm going to assume that they're really saved. But when they stand before the Lord, uh, Jesus is going to look at them and he's going to say, and, and so why were you ashamed of me? Why didn't you love the people I loved? The Apostle Paul, writing to Philemon, he says in the sixth verse, I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ and hope that the reality is people who respond the way that, that um, um, you're talking about, uh, they don't get it. They don't understand the treasure that they've been given by God. They don't understand their responsibility to be willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of winning a soul to Christ. Very, very important that they understand that, you know, Paul said that he was obligated very strong word. It's, uh, the King James uses the word a debtor. you got to pay your debts back. I'm obligated to both Greek and Jew. I've got to tell them the truth about Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. So that's important hope. Pray for your friends. That's lazy Christianity if, if they're really Christians at all. 
You know what? Let me let me take another minute. I got nobody holding on. When I first got saved, I knew nothing. Thirty-two years ago, I knew nothing. I'd never opened a Bible. Um, I'd been to church a couple of times as a little kid when my grandma dragged me. But I mean, I knew nothing. But when I met Jesus, not knowing anything at all, when I met Jesus, I understood one thing. I had to tell people about this Jesus that I just met. My sins had been forgiven. This burden had been lifted from my, my shoulders. I had hope and joy for the first time ever. And I had to tell people about it. Now, I didn't have any information to tell people. So here's what I told them. I said, I, I want you to know about this man that I met because he's done this for me. And I would share with them what God has done for me. And while I didn't know anything about the Bible yet, I, I was an expert. In fact, only the, the only expert in the world regarding what he had done for me. And the Holy Spirit simply would not let me stay quiet. I had to share with everybody. I was sharing at a, uh, a pastor's conference that I did recently that, that I would walk by people, total strangers, and I would stare at them, stare in their eyes. Jesus said the, the eyes are the window to the soul or more, more importantly to the heart. And I would look in their, in their eyes and say, Lord, show me, are they saved? Do they belong to you? And I would go out of my way to find an opportunity to introduce myself to them and just tell them what happened in my life. And uh, there was some awkward moments. And there were some, some times when it was uncomfortable. There were some people that didn't want to hear. But the other side of that coin is there were a lot of people that wanted to hear. And I was able to plant seeds. And in fact, people started getting saved pretty soon pretty early in my walk, simply by me taking that step of faith and saying, i got to tell you about this man that I met. And my whole motive, my whole motive was, why wouldn't everybody want to feel like I feel right now? I remember going to my mom and my dad, and um, um, they didn't want to hear. Uh, my brother didn't want to hear. Uh, but but they were going to hear. Um I remember, you know, Paula prayed for me for 13 years and all of our relatives, they used to say all the time, poor Paula. That was kind of her name in the family, poor Paula. She's so nice and people, yeah, they loved her so much and, and boy, she stuck with that jerk Ron. And after I got saved, their response was poor Paula. Now she's married to Ron, he's a Jesus nut. And And you know what? Meeting Jesus will make you a nut. And I'm perfectly okay with being a nut for Jesus. Here is a question from Miguel. We're now inside five minutes. So here's a question from Miguel. Are Christians supposed to tithe? Um, Miguel, a tithe means 10%. And the answer to your question is no. Tithing is an Old Testament law. We are not under the law. We've been... Um, delivered into a new covenant, a covenant of grace. Uh, when people say, well, tithing is in the Bible, well, it is, but it's written to Jews. It was part of the, the law of Moses. Uh, and, and really, 10% was just one of the offerings that they were to give. I think if you if you broke it down, it would probably be something more like 26%. Um, um, when you take all of the, the, the tithes that were supposed to go uh, in different places. 
Um, but we've been freed from that. Now we are we need we need to give. We need to be generous. We need to understand that that our money belongs to the Lord. And so rather than saying, okay, well, ten percent a dime for me. I'm sorry, Lord, a dime for you and 90 cents for me. That's to misunderstand completely our responsibility to give to God. Paul says we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. The idea there is offer all that we are and all that we have. Lord, what I have, I have because you blessed me with it. I have because of the talent you've given me. So it all belongs to you. And then, then we can get to the place and say, Lord, how much do you want me to keep? It's your money, Lord. How much do you want me to keep? Now he's going to let you keep most of it, Miguel. But but this idea of tithing is so simple. It 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 completely completely lacks faith. And I think sometimes we embrace it because we're afraid to ask God, "What do you want me to do with your money, Lord?" Now let me take a look at it from the other side. I think a lot of pastors are preaching a tithe because they can obligate you to it. And yet, Paul's letters to the Corinthians, he says that we're not to give under compulsion. We're not to be persuaded to give. Giving should flow from the heart of a Christian. We should be the most generous people on earth. And um, I think a lot of churches are locked into this teaching on tithing because they want to be able to budget. They want to be able to obligate people to give. And the reality is, is that the pastors don't trust the Lord any more than the people in the body who are giving. So how do you do it? Give God everything and say, how much of your stuff, Lord, do you want me to keep? And that's really where the freedom comes in. Now, it can't be our motive, Miguel. And I always hesitate to say this. It cannot be our motive, but the reality is you can't outgive God. And when you understand that all of the money that you have, all of your time, all of your talent, comes from God and belongs to God, I promise you, you won't be able to outgive Him. Now, again, you don't give, so, okay, well, I'll give this and God will have to give me more. It's not that at all. It's just God's nature. He blesses those of us who trust Him. And that's what He wants us to do. He wants us to trust him in every facet of our life and in particular in this area of giving. Money has become a god, a little g-god, an idol to a lot of us. And our security comes from there. We, in essence, become like the rich young ruler who walked away sad. There's a lot of Christians who are walking around sad because they didn't trust the Lord. So no, tithing is not a New Testament construct at all. Hey, we are done for today. Tomorrow, Paula will be here with the ladies from the Women's Retreat. That's always a popular program. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. This is the word to stand on for life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow with the ladies at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. I need the word to stand on.